Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Consider this. Greater Sydney is home to 5.3 million people living in a space of about 12,400 square kilometres. That's a lot of people, but it is also a lot of space. Singapore, meanwhile, has a similar population size of about 5.7 million people, so about 300,000 more than Sydney. So far, so similar. But Singapore is much, much smaller, even with all its coastal reclamation. At just 728 square kilometres, Singapore's land space is just 6% the size of Greater Sydney. Despite this, the island state has managed to boost home ownership from 60 to nearly 90% over the past four decades. Meanwhile, the proportion of Australians who own a home has plunged from 60 to 45%. These are astonishing figures. To tell us how Singapore has done it and what lessons it can provide on universal cheap home ownership, I'm joined by Dr Cameron Murray, a research fellow in the Henry Halloran Trust at the University of Sydney. Cameron's research focuses on housing economics and corruption. He is the co-author of the book Game of Mates, published in 2017, and a regular media commentator on Australian economic policy. Cameron, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Housemate, your proposal for a national institution to build new homes and sell them at low prices to any citizen who does not own a home. So let's start with the situation in Australia, where home ownership is part of the great Australian dream. But it's also increasingly inaccessible, with many Australians locked out of the market by high house prices. How does this situation impact young and low-income households in particular? Yeah, so in Australia, what we've seen is the age of first home ownership increase from around age 27 to nearly age 40. In the last 40 years, we see a lot more younger households stuck renting while trying to save an ever larger deposit to buy a home. And if you think about this from a life cycle perspective, this is typically the same time period where they're trying to start a family and raise a family. And so they have high housing costs, paying rent continuously trying to save for a home and at their at their peak spending years which is why we've seen home ownership at younger ages uh, decline in Australia so much. And yet it remains part of the great Australian dream right? Australians are really wedded to this idea of home ownership. Yeah we are and I think what we've done in Australia is we've in sort of entrenched home ownership as part of the welfare state in many ways. So our retirement system for example hinges on the fact that 90% of retirees own their own home so we don't have to subsidize housing heavily in old age. So uh, yes we are wedded to it and in many ways our sort of welfare system still relies on it. So many commentators have seen this sort of impending change where if home ownership declines as people get into old age we're going to have to really rethink what we're doing with welfare and retirement as well. So how does this situation compare with Singapore? We are SEAC stories after all, so Mm. I want to introduce Southeast Asia into the conversation. Is the same value placed on home ownership in Singapore? It is in many ways. People love owning their own homes and buying and selling. But what's very different in Singapore is they haven't relied solely on the market to provide home ownership. There is a public housing provider who sells young Singaporean citizens new homes at a discounted price to provide home ownership options to everyone uh, at a reasonable price. So that's what's different and that's why home ownership in Singapore has been rising while it's been falling in Australia. 
Yeah, what they've done in the past four decades is pretty remarkable when it comes to housing in Singapore. So is it a matter of supply? Are they just more apartments in their high rises or is it about the policies? Yeah, it's actually about policy and how they regulate the way people access ownership of housing. So in Australia, what we do is we allocate property rights by price only. And so if you want to access property, you've got to go and outbid somebody else. Whereas in Singapore, the Housing Development Board, which is their public home building, home supplying alternative, they don't allocate by price. What they do is they allocate at a discounted price to any citizen who is eligible. And what they do is they increase the amount of supply to meet the number of eligible people at that lower discounted price. And so... For example, I think there's over three people per dwelling in Singapore on average, but in Australia, it's only 2.5 people per dwelling. And our dwellings are much, much bigger. So we do have a lot of housing, a lot of physical buildings compared to Singapore. What we don't have is a cheap way to access home ownership without going to the market and having to outbid everybody else. All right. So we've got these two very different models. In Australia, home ownership is valued and prices are really high. And in Singapore, houses are owned by the state and are much more affordable. Is, well, that, is that right? That, that's interesting because that's actually a point of contention. Is home ownership in Singapore? So 88% of people live in a, a dwelling that was built by the Housing Development Board. So it's public housing in a sense. But they can buy and sell it. They can inherit it. They can rent it out after their mandatory occupancy period. They have all the rights of home owners. It's just what they did is they got that ownership through a regulated public system. So that's a bit of a contention in economics. Is all the housing public housing or is it just private home ownership delivered in a different way at a more cheap price to people? There's no clear distinction between what's home ownership and what's not, but For all intents and purposes, people live in their homes for their whole lives. They inherit homes. They can sell homes on the secondary market, just like we can here. And I think everybody there feels like it's home ownership, just as we would feel like owning a private dwelling in Australia is, you know, living the dream of home ownership. So is this about what the market wants? Are are there political incentives in Australia for keeping house prices high? (laughs) Are there? Yeah. So that's always the tension in Australia. We actually have 65% of households are homeowners, a bit over 30% are private renters. And those homeowners are obviously a big voting block and they like their asset price to be high. Australia's housing stock is worth $10 trillion. If you engineered a policy to reduce the price 30%, you're wiping $3 trillion, not billion, trillion dollars off the balance sheets of the wealthiest two-thirds of Australian households. And so that's a political impossibility in my view. And that's why... Prices have gone up and few effective options at providing cheap alternatives have been implemented because tampering with the private market is political suicide. Mm. Um, All right. So talk us through your proposal, this housemate. Yeah. So I've proposed we copy the best elements of Singapore's Housing Development Board scheme, which is their public home ownership alternative. And so the reason to do this is We want to let the private market operate. We want those 65%, those six and a half million households to buy and sell in the private market as they do. What we want to do is introduce an additional alternative for young households to buy from a public housing provider at a discounted price so they can get a home ownership alternative just the way that Singapore provides. And essentially how it would work is that you create a a government agency that acts as a developer and they would buy land or acquire 
properties either by tendering to private developers across our major cities and regions. So in the in middle of the city, you'd be building apartments. In the suburbs, you'd be building townhouses. And at the regional towns, you'd have detached housing. And any eligible Australian who doesn't own their own home would be able to buy one of these housemate dwellings at a regulated price. And that price would roughly reflect construction costs. So say, for example, the market price of a townhouse in a suburb is 700000 but the construction cost is 350 you would just be paying 350000 to housemate to buy that dwelling. The additional trick in the Singapore scheme is that you can use your compulsory retirement savings as a deposit and to repay the loan. So their compulsory savings is actually 20% of income. Here it's only 95 going up to 12 most likely. So I've proposed that you can use your super annuation to pay for the deposit and repay a mortgage on a housemate dwelling. And what that does is that it allows younger households to save for retirement in the form of a house first. So rather than saving in the form of you know, a share portfolio in your super, the first thing you need in retirement is a house. So you buy the house first and then later in your 40s and 50s, you use your super to buy other assets. And so, for example, the typical household in Singapore who buys a, a new housemate dwelling has no additional out-of-pocket costs to buy that house. They show up, they're eligible, their super fund, the, the central provident fund tells the HDB, yes, we know how much this person earns, please lend them this money. And essentially their cash flow is unchanged because their retirement savings, this 20% of income, is enough to repay the house. And so what that means is they've got a lot more disposable income in those, those younger years when they're trying to start a family. And, and, that, and that's the exact thing we don't have in Australia, where when we've got our low incomes, we're trying to save, we're trying to rent at the same time. And so I think there's a, a huge advantage to that. So there's some of the benefits of this scheme that you've proposed. Um, what about some of the less desirable aspects of Singapore's housing policy? Are there elements that you're leaving out? Yeah, so obviously Singapore's there's a few different things. I mean, Singapore has a very different political background to Australia. So, for example, the Housing Development Board, their public home ownership system is only available to citizens and principal residences. What permanent, are, permanent residences. Permanent residences. <laughs> yeah. Mental blank there. Um, and so obviously all your guest workers aren't eligible for this and they have to sort of tackle the market and they, they have their issues there. There's also racial quotas in new projects in Singapore. So that's been a long-standing social policy. So each project, you've got to meet a quota. So none of that seems to be relevant in Australia. You know, one of the great things about Australia is how well we deal with immigration, multiculturalism. If you travel the world, it's just astounding how well everyone in Australia just gets along. So you don't, you don't need all that baggage. What you just need is those, are those key economic fundamentals, which is a cheap alternative for young families to get into home ownership. That's at a regulated price that lets them use their compulsory savings. And what they can do afterwards is this is genuine home ownership. It's almost like a parallel market because after a mandatory occupancy period, so in Singapore you have to occupy it for five years, you can't just get it and then resell it. You can actually sell it to somebody else who's eligible for the scheme. And so you can buy either a new or a secondary market dwelling. So it's got a lot of benefits and we should adopt those key elements, but we don't have to do social engineering with it as well. So this is really, homeowners have autonomy over what they do with their home. Um, mm -hmm. I think you're proposing that in Australia, you have to own the home for seven years, is that right? Yeah, correct. And yeah. I, that's just a political 
trade-off, right? Uh, I just think the appetite in Australia is you don't want people making money from a public scheme too quickly. <laughs> yes, yes, okay. Um, so um, homeowners would be responsible for their own maintenance and they could do renovations and just like in Singapore? Yeah, so in Singapore, you're responsible. F you can actually buy a raw apartment if you buy new and then you fit it out with your own kitchen, bathroom, doors, paint yourself or you can buy it completed if you like the fittings that come as an option and you can chop and change as you like. There is a little bit more ongoing hands-on sort of centralised management of Singapore because the projects are usually high density, very massive, over 2,000 dwellings. And so there's a lot of centralised sort of management and maintenance, which I don't think is needed in Australia if they're predominantly going to be smaller sort of projects. And especially in detached housing, people want the Australian dream. They want to be able to renovate and, and tinker with their property over time, which you could certainly do because mm. it's yours and you can then resell it once you've improved it and made in, uh, investments on your property. So um, let's talk about land, access mm -hmm. to land, because, um, you know, as I was saying, Singapore is just 6% the size of Greater Sydney. Mm -hmm. Um, and the government owns 90% of the land, which is definitely not the case here in Australia. Um, how would we get access to the land required for housemate? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so historically, Singapore was able to essentially nationalise private land to do this with minimal compensation, although recently their rules have changed to be in line with most of the rest of the world where you must pay just terms market value compensation to private landowners. So in Australia, we have a huge advantage in terms of space and land. For example, I was, I was talking to someone and they said, oh, I'm doing a, a you know affordable housing project. This council had all these car parks that were in really good locations and we did a deal that we would leave the car park on the ground floor but we would build a building above it and that would be a public car park. And so I think if you look, there are plenty of existing sites but you, know, you don't have to restrict yourself to existing government sites. You can just acquire sites. You can contract out to developers who have major projects and buy small sections of their project. They might want to offer you a discount, the housemate institution, for de-risking their larger project by buying all of stage one, for example. And so you might be able to acquire that at 15% below market and then sell it to the housemate buyers at an even bigger discount. Mm. So a lot of the concern about land comes down to accounting. You know, even if we have government land sitting around and we use it and it looks like it's free, it's not free because we could always sell it for the market price. It's just that we're going to account for it differently. And so I think we shouldn't get caught up with the fact that sometimes you have to buy the land and pay the market price. I mean, the economic price is always the same because you could have always made that market price even with government-owned land. So I, d I don't see it as a big deal at all. And I think it's going to be much, much easier than Singapore because we just have so many more options, especially in regional towns and on the urban fringe, to be very creative with how we use land. I've read somewhere that your proposal has been seen as a radical intervention. Do you see it as such? I think that tells you a lot about the Australian housing debate, that something that's been operating for half a century in, in our northern neighbour in Singapore is, is something that's radical or off the page. You know, Singapore is renowned as a very free market, free trade type economy. It's not a place people look to and fear the sort of public policy settings. So, yes, it's radical in the Australian context. But if you think historically in Australia, after the Second World War, we were giving soldiers free land. You know, we were we had rent controls on private dwellings. We had major public investment in new housing subdivisions. 
we had major public financing of new housing and we had huge restrictions on private bank lending for existing housing. So, you know, we have intervened in the past. This is a much cleaner way, I think, to do it, basing it on something that's worked for a long time elsewhere. But you need some kind of intervention if you want to boost home ownership. So in Australia, from the mid-1950s to 1972, home ownership went up from something like 55% to 72%. And then it's gradually fallen from that point since. And if we look around the world, and this is what I did, I looked around the world, what's a good housing system that we can copy? Surely something works somewhere. Singapore is it. But if you also look historically at other places, the only way countries have radically boosted home ownership is through quite heavy-handed public intervention. And that's a fact that it's very hard to accept in Australia, given the state of the debate right now, where we think the markets are going to deliver some kind of outcome that markets never seem to deliver here or anywhere else. And so I think once we've got over that, that intellectual baggage, we can see that this is not that radical. It's something that has worked and it's not too different from things we've done in the past here. I think that historical point is a good one with the reference to the soldier settlements. Um, do you think that intellectual baggage is carried more by the general Australian population or is it a matter of changing political will? I think it's a combination of both, actually. I think Australians have been in many ways trained to be fearful of public intervention in some areas. And it's quite interesting where you find this. We all love Medicare and we love the fact that we can show up at a public hospital. And we love the fact that governments just build roads everywhere and we complain if there's potholes and, you know, we, we sort of expect them to deliver. And then in other areas, you know, the NBN, for example, got really politicised and for some reason we thought that was a bad area uh, for public intervention. But I think as a whole, the, the hook here is that most Australians like a public sector that is productive and does things. You know, when, when you get a public agency that works and builds things and delivers things, we like it, but we kind of ignore it. We don't celebrate it. And then when they fail, everyone wants to talk about it. So I think in a way we've been trained collectively. And I think at the political level, there's just a lot of incentives from, you know, their networks, both individually. So there's across federal, state and local governments, there's over 5,000 elected politicians in the country. Uh, your typical federal politician owns 2.3 residential dwellings on average, and the average Australian dwelling is worth a million dollars right now. So if you add all that up, that's like uh, $13 billion worth of property assets in our political class alone, add in their family and friends, and you can see that there's not a huge interest from that group to do something about housing when their balance sheets really depend on it. So I think the way Housemate navigates this problem is we let them have their $13 billion of housing. We don't try and manipulate the price of that. What we do is we just offer people an alternative. Fabulous. That's a great way to wrap up. So um, let me finish by asking you this final question. Obviously, there's a lot of housing and urban infrastructure specialists in Singapore. And what you've tried to do with Housemate, I think, is start this conversation. Do you see Australia potentially working more closely with Singapore on this issue if, if it gets taken up, if people want to take it further? I do. In fact, um, I'm, I'm meeting with some people from Singapore later today. Um, what's actually happening is some of the expertise from the Housing Development Board has now been packaged into a corporatized arm. And what they're trying to do is export that expertise around Southeast Asia. So they have pilot projects in Brunei, Myanmar, India. 
and they're trying to say, look, this we've got a system that works. We know all the unwritten sort of tricks to the trade of getting efficient construction at scale, understanding the pricing, etc. And so, you know, my general view on creating new institutions is that you go and find people who've done it and got the experience to help you build up that internal capacity. So I think that's, you know, that's a simple way to do it. Yeah, there's going to be teething problems, but you want to bring in that experience and then train up local capacity. Fantastic. Cameron, thank you so much for joining us on SEAC Stories. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.